0: The following content is derived from the equip ministry of Ashland Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. We will be spending the next six weeks together diving into the book, A Praying Church by Paul Miller. This time will be spent learning how we as a church can improve in one of the most critical aspects of the Christian life, prayer. For more information about our church, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, just this study, uh, the challenge from it, Lord. Um, I know it has been um, really beneficial for my own heart and challenging me, Lord. And um, Lord, not just to pray, Lord, but to see the importance of prayer, Lord, uh, both in its power, Lord, and its um, necessity, Lord, in in walking in close fellowship with you, Lord. And we thank you for the the opportunity to to do this as a church, um, to discuss this important topic, this important discipline, Lord, um, and to do so in the context of, of the community of the church, Lord, to uh, analyze the role that prayer plays uh, in a, not just in a Christian's life, but in the life of the body of Christ, the, the life of the church as a whole, Lord. Um, Lord, we pray that you'd bless our conversation tonight, Lord, as we um, just uh discuss uh, this part four in this book, Lord. We pray that you would uh, bear fruit in our hearts through this Lord and and uh, grow us in this discipline as well, Lord that we might be uh, a, a faithful and steadfast church in the discipline of prayer. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so um, if you say it on the on the front end here, I don't know how I'm going to get six chapters in uh in 60 minutes but we are we're gonna we're gonna try um the first chapter we're discussing uh well this this whole part uh is titled the art of praying together uh where uh, paul miller is discussing really just kind of the the hands-on how we how we start to put uh the practice of prayer into effect in building a community of prayer uh, and this first chapter, chapter 17, is about beginning low and slow. So he says the art of, pr- of praying together begins low and slow. And what he means by that is that a praying community is almost always cultivated with small and hidden yet faithful beginnings. Um, and he opens his first chapter, he opens this uh, chapter 17 up uh, by talking about the story of Anna, the prophetess, um, And I don't know about any of you guys, but I was actually really challenged by this because when I read it at first, and he first mentioned, let's learn from Anna, and he starts talking about a prophetess named Anna, I was actually trying to think through the Bible and going, okay, where's the story of the prophetess Anna? Who who was she again? And I was having a hard time recalling her story, which was kind of his point. Um, He talks about how she is a hidden story, Uh, often forgotten about and often not really recognized, not really seen as a uh, prominent role in scripture. Um, But he draws our attention nonetheless to Luke chapter 2 in 36 through 38 uh, and where we reread of her story. And this is the entirety of her story. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Fenuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. That's it. That's all we have of Anna. Um, We're given one paragraph, literally three verses in the entire Bible. Her story is a hidden story. Yet the gospel writer Luke interrupts the birth narrative of Jesus to mention her by name. That is significant. Why does he do that? Because while she plays a small section, a role as in a small section in scripture, her role is weighty. He's making a point about that. While Anna's story is short and hidden, it's in the background in the kingdom of God. Her role is critical and powerful. Anna's role was one of steadfast, faithful ministry of prayer. And when you look at the timeline of her life, you start to see really what that steadfastness and faithfulness to that ministry looks like you know, he mentions that um, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. Back in those times, in biblical times, in the New Testament, it was common for um, couples to be married early in their teens. So if we're thinking through Hannah's, uh, I'm sorry, through Anna's um, timeline of her life, she was probably married, or like I said, early in her teens, given seven years of marriage and her husband dies and she's widowed in her early twenties. And then what are we told after that? From then on, she did not depart from the temple until she was, she, she, she was a widow until she was 84 and she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And so when you try to do the math, you're thinking about this, you're going, this is a life devoted to prayer for approximately 60 years. She did not depart from the temple. Uh, Miller words it this way. And he says that um, she turned to the house of prayer and found a home there. And it's not about a location that he's talking about what he's, what he's saying is she found her, her home in the work, the faithful work of prayer. That's where she found her home was in, was in the work of prayer. Talk about faithfulness. Talk about steadfastness and commitment to it. You know, as I was reading through uh, this story and, and what, what, he was, um, what Paul Miller was talking about, one of the things that was popping in my mind and realizing was there's a parallel, parallel nature between Anna's story and John the Baptist's. You know, he says at one point that Anna prays in the Messiah. She's she's spending 80 years before Christ's birth, praying for the redemption of Israel to come. What was the role of John the Baptist? Can you guys think of his role? He was the voice in the wilderness crying out loud, prepare the way of the Lord. He was the one proclaiming before people, getting them ready for Christ's entry. And what is Anna doing? She spends 60 years of her life praying in the temple, praying for the preparation of Christ's coming. We all know of John the Baptist very clearly, but do we know the story of Anna? Do we know the weight, the the, the importance of her role? We know it of John the Baptist. One of the biggest takeaways, I think, uh, that we find in this chapter is what I've just mentioned—the importance of steadfast and faithfulness in the hidden yet powerful work of prayer—and that that steadfastness and faithfulness, despite circumstances or seasons of our life. Page uh, one seventy, he says, all great movements of the kingdom of God begin low and slow with hidden pra- with hidden prayers who keep showing up to pray who pray when they don't feel like it, who pray when there is no change, who pray when they are discouraged, they are continual in prayer, and they slowly attract other prayers to join them. And then he also quotes um, an author, uh, Ole Halesby, in uh, a book that he wrote called Prayer, who uh, compares the work of revival to mining. It might take a week to bore a long hole in a mining shaft. After the hole is drilled, it is packed with dynamite. A charge is set, and in an instant, tons of rock break loose. Everyone's attention is focused on the excitement of the explosion. But the real work is the tedious boring, or the tedious work of continued prayer, when we don't feel like it, when there is no change when you're discouraged, yet continuing in prayer for days, for weeks, for months, for years, for 60 years. There's a difficulty in that, and there's a tension in that, like how do we do that? And I want us to go ahead and just, just as a big group here question, and throughout tonight we'll have some time for just general big questions and maybe break up into some smaller groups here. But uh, a bigger question I just want to ask here, what, what gets your guys thoughts on this? How do you endure the tedious um, boring of prayer? When he talks about boring into that, that mine for a week and, and that long tedious work, how do you maintain endurance and perseverance? hmm What else did you guys say? It's it's gotta be refreshed by God because she saw no change. No change. Sixty years long of that last <laughs> right. have to have things fed in some way, seeing other things working. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one thing to notice from her in that, the refreshing, I mean, obviously there's the aspect of God's word, but a whole nother thing that you can focus on is where was she praying? She was praying in the temple. And I don't say that from a a mystical standpoint of, oh, we go to this, this holy place, but no, who's she around, right? She's around others who are praying. She's not praying in isolation, but she's being lifted up by the prayers of others as well and encouraged to keep praying, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the centrality of communion with God to your prayer, Yeah. I think, is important. Absolutely. So like, even if mm-hmm. I'm not seeing results, the end of just being with God in that yeah. way is, is a good end in and of itself. Yeah, absolutely. There's that balance there. Yeah. For sure. One of the things that uh, he points out in the book that I think is just... Really practical um, when you're keeping the end goal in mind and you're seeking to be refreshed. He talks about celebrating the smaller answered prayers, right? You know, I think sometimes we're thinking of the big goal and we're just waiting for the big goal, but oftentimes that big goal that we're praying for is also is also answered through the smaller goals that are met along the way, right? That one, like if we're if we're praying for someone to come to Christ. We're celebrating in that first, that second, that third conversation where we get to get a little bit deeper into the gospel. We celebrate those as answers to prayer. Uh, And that's one thing he mentions. Um, Something that comes to my mind with this is um, to kind of illustrate it is, uh, you know, the past two years now, uh, Rachel and I have uh, have been homeowners And part of that is I was really excited to plant a garden in our backyard. And last year, I kind of just got my feet wet or my hands dirty a little bit. um, And we've started a little garden. And we just had some like tomatoes and peppers. um, And it was a little small, small, like, you know, four foot by 10 foot garden. And this year, we're expanding a little bit. And I got really into it. And uh, this year, I, you know, decided I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and sow some seeds in the ground. Um, f- so growing some, uh, some green beans, some zucchini and cucumber. And, you know, you sow a seed and it takes about a week or so for them to germinate and start sprouting up. So after that seven days were over, I started going out there like a l- little kid on Christmas day. And I'm like getting down on the ground and I'm looking, where's the soil starting to break? And like just seeing like, I'm like even moving their dirt around just a little bit so I can see is it starting? Is it starting to germinate? Is it starting to grow? And I would see stuff start to pop up and then Rachel had to put up with it because I would then run back inside and say, Rachel, Rachel, let's go out to the garden as a family and let's go look at this, get all sentiment and everything. And and I'm getting all excited because I'm looking at this little seed that's sprouting up. Well, nobody plants a garden for the purpose of having a little seedling, right? You plant a garden so that you can eat full grown tomatoes that you can reap a harvest, right? But you celebrate those little steps of progress along the way, those little answers of prayers that God is giving on the way. And that keeps you encouraged to keep watering, to keep praying, to keep going to God and looking for more answers and uh, bigger answers. So chapter 18, um, moving on to there, he talks about forming a divine community. And one of the things he his big thing that he kind of bats off with in the, in the chapter is this idea of a structured time of prayer. Uh, and when he's, when he's talking about this, he's, he's defining a structured time of prayer as uh, a time you're setting aside, gathering with others for the sole purpose of praying together. Something that I think we often don't see a whole lot of today. Um, thankfully, it's been really refreshing to see more of that actually happening here too in our church. Um, but, uh, on page 177, uh, he talks about how at prayer seminars, people will push back at the necessity of such structured, uh, prayer times, uh, saying that, uh, that they just pray on the fly. You know, I think we often hear it more so in the terminology of, oh, well, I just, you know, I pray without ceasing, taking, uh, the scripture out of context there, um, saying that that's, that's enough, right? That's enough for me. Um, and I love what he says to counter that. And he says, if I'm discussing this with a married man, I'll ask, so do you have time during the day when you sit down and listen with your wife over dinner? Or do you just connect on the fly? You can't develop intimacy with, with multi, while multitasking. You must have regular times of undivided attentiveness. And to drive that point a little further, I thought it would be helpful to consider also the other side of that illustration. What happens when you do rely or you try to rely on connecting on the fly? Believe it or not, Rachel and I will have times where there's tension between us. or When we get frustrated with one another, we've had those seasons. I think I think every marriage has right. In those seasons, though, we'll finally sit down and have a conversation and we'll talk through it and we'll figure out what's what's going on, why are we like so tense towards each other right now? And one and while we might discuss several things, one of the things that I find continually comes up whenever, or a, a common denominator is is I come to a realization I say, you know, I have not taken the time to take you out on a date. We have not taken the time to just be together much. And I think that's insightful because, I mean, it's it it points to that reality that uh, without investing in that intentional time, we can risk living in close enough proximity to rub shoulders without the stabilization of relational depth. Right. And that's important to consider not only in our relationships with one another, but both with God, with with one another and with God. And I think that's one thing that's so beautiful and amazing about a community of prayer, is we see something really amazing happening in that. In, in page uh, 181, he uh, reflects on uh, his ministry um, organization's staff prayer, prayer meetings. Uh, one, of the, one of the members of his staff reflects upon it. Um, page 181, he, uh, he says, as one staff member has said about our prayer times. It is a family where we are loved unconditionally. Praying together is the strongest of glue. God is our fortress, but our prayer time provides strong walls of love, care, and integrity. Notice the close connection between love and prayer. By opening up to each other, we're not just loving the people we are praying for, we're also loving the people we are praying with. Praying together opens the door to love where one person's burden becomes everyone's burden. You know, a couple uh, scriptures come to mind uh, when, when reading that. Uh, first is uh, in Romans chapter 12. When we read uh, in uh, starting at 15 through just the beginning of, of verse 16. Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live at harmony with one another. Another way to say, live in a unity with one another. And then along with that, 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What happens when we pray together as a community, as a church, as the body of Christ? We're doing what Paul says in Romans. We're bearing one another's burdens. And then we're taking those burdens and we cast them on God. And then he enters in and he bears those burdens with us. And there's a threefold unity going on. Where we're united with one another, bearing those burdens and then God enters in that with us. And he, he expresses that communion with us as well. And we build up in love, deepening that relational depth, right? One of the biggest excuses um, to structure time of prayer is time itself. And he points that out. Um, it's another thing to just add to our plate, right? Another, another thing to add to our busy schedules but if we truly believe that prayer is crucial, we ought to start with it. And I like what he, he mentions, this idea of, uh, of prayer tithing uh, in page uh, 176 and 77. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. It says, um. He talks about uh, taking our time. He talks about his, his uh, ministry organization and how they spend uh, every week. It's required for the staff to take four to five hours out of their work week, and it's completely devoted to prayer, whether it be individually or on a, uh, on a team uh, you know, Zoom call where they're praying together. He talks about how they, they find themselves actually spending 10% of their work week in prayer. And obviously this is a ministry organization, um, where they can have that focused. Um, I would have a hard time, um, trying to incorporate that at the bank, but, um, but he talks about how, you know, he relates it to tithing, you know, like, like many people will tithe 10% of their income, you know, he talks about how they find themselves tithing 10% of their, their work time to prayer. And he said something really insightful, he says, you know, tithing doesn't just take 10% of your money, it changes how you spend the other 90%. You must be more thoughtful about your money because you start off with less. A prayer tithe does the same. You have to pray because when you take four to five hours out of every work week, you have less time to get your work done. And like tithing, you need to give it up front. If you wait to the end, nothing will be left. You have to defend the time. A a quote came to my mind from uh, Martin Luther. He said, I have so much to do today that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. And, And again, hearing that can sound very intimidating when you work a nine to five job and you go, I have two kids at home you know, how am I going to fit three hours of prayer? But I think the, the, the point stands there um, to be said, we all have busy lives, but we can't see our busy lives as a reason to neglect prayer in our lives. Rather, it should drive us into it, right? We should see it as our dependency. And I think when we do that, when we do see it as a reason to neglect prayer, it's ultimately a sign that a sign of pride and foolishness in our heart, right? If we're so overwhelmed with how busy we are that we are then relying upon our own power, our own strength, our own ability to structure our time and to work efficiently and and all those things are great, but we're not consulting the one who's the author of time, the one who gives us the very breath to be efficient, right? We're living so narrow-mindedly just looking at what we can do, how we can get things done. And it's not just about time management. I think, you know, it's, it's easy from what, what he said here to just focus it on, focusing it on, you know, fitting it in and, and being a distributor of time. But this applies in so many areas of our life also with, with specific burdens and responsibilities we may have. Um, I think some really relatable ones, one for me recently has been Parenting. Um, relational conflict, witnessing, we can spend so much of our mental and emotional energy focusing on strategizing in those burdens and in those responsibilities and, and truly, truly joys as well. But rather than taking those burdens first in prayer and seeking out God's help on it, Uh, I think a really great example of this that we've seen recently is in our, our church's mission team. Um, the past year, you know, we, we, we took on now two refugee families and and it has been so amazing to see how God has been stirring this heart of, of local and international and global outreach uh, to share the gospel with others. And in the midst of all this, this growing emphasis and growing passion, um, and the, on the missions team chat on, on the, the, the uh, church center, uh, Anna Borengasser speaks up and she says, you know, I've really felt a burden as we're doing all this outreach that we're not doing enough praying. Um, we've been spending so much time. This. So she said, so I'm going to go ahead and start organizing monthly. I'm going to go ahead and start posting a day and we'll gather together and we're going to pray together uh, for what we're doing. That's a great example of how we should be, you know, if you, if you want to use the same terminology, tithing our efforts, you know, within those, those efforts and then those those ambitions starting on our knees going, God, this isn't going to bear any fruit without your spirit, without your power. Um, so with that in mind, um, we'll go ahead and break into just, uh, well, actually, no, we'll just say it as a, as a, as a whole group uh, for time's sake here. Um, what's one small step that you can take or have taken to start praying about something instead of only strategizing about it? Maybe we need to strategize about that question. <laughs> yeah? I don't read this, so small step. Read a book. Sure? Absolutely. I think, for me, um, talking about parenting, um, one thing that I have found is, is <clears throat> and even just, you know, being united with my wife is uh, praying together at night before we sleep for our family. I um, have been times that we are faithful in that and remember to do that. Um, so refreshed by just a unity in that and also just like focused endeavors too. Like it helps my focus, right? When he talks about the whole like, you spend that 10%, you have to use that 90% more efficiently. Like that 10% used in that way to pray, focuses your mind even more, um, and helps you think toward that end. Um, The next chapter, uh, in in chapter 19, he talks about, uh, the the chapter's title is uh, Restoring Prayer to Sunday Morning, Um, and he kind of asks the the question, you know, uh, what role does prayer play on a Sunday morning worship service? Um, and, you know, there's a lot that you can say across denominations and things. I think he's a, a Presbyterian, I believe, and, and, and every church this is going to look different in. Um, but I think a great place to start that he even, he even kind of hints towards is beginning intentionally with what you're already doing. Um, he says on page 194, remember much of what we do in worship is prayer. Nearly every song is a prayer. When we switch gears from singing to praying, we continue our prayer in another, in another mode, and this is not not to be treated as like a, as like a cop out, saying like, "Okay, we've 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 checked that box now," um, but more so a challenge to engage in our worship and prayer more intentionally. Uh, we're not just singing these songs to God; we're not just singing these songs about God, uh, but rather we're talking to God. We're approaching God in prayer that is merely just set to tune. And thinking through that too, what's the benefit of music in that endeavor as well, right? When we talk about engaging our hearts in, in, in a humanized way where we are actually engaging our emotions, that music has that beautiful element to it that really it engages our hearts on an emotional level, right? Not, not to manipulate it, but to amplify it. It helps us express this. It helps us express this in prayer. Um, and to do that also on a Sunday morning in variety. You know, every, um, every service, we have kind of an order that we follow that is a variety of the gospel. Um, and when you think about what he mentioned there about like, you know, every song being a prayer in a form. And just, just to give you kind of an idea, thinking through, you know, a possible, you know, uh, mock-up version of what, what a Sunday morning might look like, you know. We start our service with a prayer of adoration, with a song like Glorious Christ. You are the glorious Christ, the greatest of all delights. Your power is unequal. Your love beyond all heights, no greater sacrifice than when you laid down your life. We join the song of angels who praise you day and night, Glorious Christ. We move into a time of confession and we pray a prayer like, O oh, great God. O oh, great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme, conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me, make me yours forevermore. We move to a prayer of assurance. Your grace, in the song, grace, your grace that brings the sinner home from death to life forever has called my heart to enter in the joy of your salvation. We sing a song, of, uh, we, we pray a prayer of devotion in the song, all I have is Christ. In the third verse, now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live that all might see the strength to follow your, your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. And let my song forever be. My only boast is you. We sing those songs all the time. But I think it's really easy to just enter in on a Sunday morning and flip on the passive switch and just see it as that. We're singing songs. No. No. We're praying prayers. We are praying to God in prayer. Do we engage it that way though? Or are we just singing words? Let's pray to God on Sunday mornings in what we're already doing. But then he goes on um, to more ideas. Like I said, you know, that's, that is one way where, where we could just start. But he goes on to also challenge us to be thinking through how we incorporate prayer beyond song as well, right? We move prayer from, from song to another mode of prayer. Uh, and honestly, uh, you know, one thing that uh, Josh and I have been talking about is including more of this. Um, he's he's uh, mentioned uh, about praying once a month, a time of praying for the nations, praying for people groups who need Christ. Um, I think one thing, though, to consider with this is when we, when we typically engage in a congregational prayer, um, whether it be prompts on a screen that then we pray individually or, um, or a full script that we pray together, um, one thing that I think is good to, to address is what are some of the stumbling blocks or difficulties that make engaging with congregational or corporate prayer difficult? Like, it can feel difficult sometimes, right? It can feel a little awkward, right? What makes it happen? Like, what, why, why is that the case? What makes that the case? I've prayed that prayer many a times on the Sunday morning, even while leading worship. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> <For my> <laughs> no. <laughs> yes, Lord Breck looks very uh, distracted this morning. Would you? <laughs> no, for my own self. Absolutely. Breck's kind of funny, though. You've said to me on multiple occasions hey, I'm really sorry about this <laughs> now. like I'm noticing you, Breck. <laughs> yeah, so I've
1: been wondering about that the whole time. <laughs>
0: yes um a few things that i i had thought of this week while thinking through this was um the influence of an individualistic society um i think sometimes we come in here and we feel that it's it's not well it's not genuine because it's not mine it's not my expression you know those those are words on the screen that everybody's reading but that's not from my heart you know um it's not my personal prayer. Can I really say I'm praying? But I think that scripture really offers us some counter examples to that, to correct that. I mean, take the Psalms, for example, in and of itself. Those are, those are pre-recorded, pre-written prayers that then the entire nation of Israel is praying, right? They were a community culture. What is the church? (laughs) We are a community culture. Why, why shouldn't we be saying the same prayers, right? We all hold to the same gospel. We all struggle with the same sin, right? We should be, we all have the same goals, the same desire shared in Christ. I think another example is when we just saw, when we just preached through, uh, or Pastor Casey just preached through, through Nineveh, I'm sorry, through uh, Jonah, but we saw Nineveh, right? What was what happened in Nineveh when Jonah finally got his act together partially and and proclaimed his prophecy uh, of repentance to the people in Nineveh? What did they do? The king calls forth an order and tells everyone in the country to repent, to fast, to cover themselves in sackcloth and ashes and repent and everyone prays. What was the result? God honored that. That was a community effort of prayer. When everybody is called to say, hey, everyone pray this prayer, repent, repent together, ask God for mercy. And God responds and says, I honor your hearts collectively. Yes, I will relent. I will have mercy. We see that in scripture. Prayer is not just an individualistic act. It is a corporate act as well. I think, you know, asking the question, what can we do to train our hearts and minds to counter that mentality? Um, Pray the prayers of others. You know, I've already mentioned the Psalms. Uh, We can pray the Psalms. Those are prayers written from God, through God's people, for God's people. Consider like praying the prayers of Paul in his epistles. I think someone had mentioned it before in the previous weeks or even in the book, Paul's epistles are loaded with prayers, and they're great examples for us. Um, Ephesians 3, we won't go into right now, but Ephesians 3, 14 through 21 is a great prayer to pray for yourself, but also a prayer for others. When he says that God would give us a a mind that could comprehend the depths and riches of God's mercy and grace towards us, that's a prayer to, to, yes, pray for ourselves, but then also pray for your brothers and sisters, that they would have that too. Pray recorded prayers like resources throughout history, the Valley of Vision. These are, these are excellent prayers uh, written by, by Puritans in the past. We benefit from how others pray. You know, it's, it really starts to open our eyes to seeing how we can approach God in different ways. We, I just started doing this, um, I don't know, within the past year or so on the worship team before, uh, before rehearsal we'll pray together. And before the service, we meet together and we pray before we start the service uh, as a worship team. And I started realizing, I'm like, you know, like the worship team, I've, I've, I'm trying to cultivate this idea that everyone who serves on the worship team is a worship leader. And so I said, well, let's, let's distribute this responsibility of praying before the service. And I would ask other people, hearing Jeff Newberry pray is so refreshing Hearing Rosemary Newberry pray, hearing Jess Crawford pray, hearing Laura Clayton pray is so refreshing in the way that they approach God in a way that I can not pray oftentimes and get in my own rut of praying. And I go, oh yeah, God's my heavenly father. And they, they, they pray so much with this focus of God being their heavenly father. And I, I tend to just see him as Lord, you know, but I can approach God in so many different ways through the gospel, and I can benefit through hearing my brothers and sisters pray. Um, I think one other last uh, thing that, that can, can cause us to um, um, struggle with corporate prayer is um, the influence of a consumerist, consumeristic society on corporate prayer and worship. When you come in to just be entertained, right? To just uh, to not participate, but to receive. Um, you know, uh, just make this really brief here. Um, but, um, you know, we, we have someone else had, in previous week, I think, had, had mentioned this, but um, the liturgy guide that we have every week in our, in our bulletins. The very word liturgy is translated work of the people. And when I say work, I don't mean like a moral act as like a, this is your good deed that you do on Sunday mornings, but more so work of the people as in a this is the participation of the people. This is our work that we labor together in joyfully. Um, you know, for for those in, in you know, familiar in, in sports and everything, this is the liturgy guide almost is, is to be able to serve as a playbook for that Sunday morning. How we're going to carry out this this responsibility that we have as God's people, the plan that we have to to carry out the responsibility of worshiping God, of praying to him. Moving forward to uh, chapter uh, 20, and and honestly also chapter uh, 21. um, These are kind of two sides of the same coin, these these chapters. Um, He kind of founds a lot of this upon uh, the concept that he talks about earlier in the book called the J-curve. and whether you've been able to keep up with the reading or, you know, had to skip over different parts, uh, the J curve is this idea that we are following Jesus in his path as we pray, but also live. Uh, and this path being a path of death and resurrection. Um, so when we are, you know, it forms the the shape of a, of a J, um, he says, you know, we, as we go down in the J, uh, curve, we we are humbling ourselves, we're denying ourselves, we're dying to ourselves, we're giving up control and power as we're praying, and then in the resurrection of our prayer, we see redemption, empowerment from the Holy Spirit, and and we see answered prayer, we see fruit, we see God's glory put on display. And um, he kind of, within these two chapters, uh, kind of talks about two problematic tendencies we can have. Uh, And the first one is getting stuck at the bottom of the J curve. Um, So over focusing on the problem, not seeing any hope, but just kind of getting stuck in the muck um, of despair. And then the other is neglecting the reality of problems and just kind of coasting along in our prayer and never never getting past the surface. so uh, really quick with that, um, have you ever been in a context where either of those is, is a problematic tendency? That you, you get stuck in the bottom of the J-curves, J-curve, um, get stuck in, in just the despair and the problems that you're bringing, or in a context where you don't even get to it. It's just surface level. And how do we get unstuck? What causes us to get stuck down there? Or what's the danger of avoiding, you know, addressing those problems? Kind of combining two questions there, because I know we're short on time. Yeah. Praise God. No. Um. Yeah, the, uh, I think one of the, um, things that, that, you know, he, he emphasized some as well was the, the, uh, as far as being stuck on the bottom of the J curve is, is the, the importance of hope, which, which you, I think kind of even alluded to some there when you're talking about seeing others and, and seeing the hope in one another, um, he talks about Paul's view of his own life in uh, 190, in pages 199 through 200, and, and he talks about, you know, when he asks other people saying, you know, describe Paul's life to me, and they say, oh, suffering, hardship, just it was hard. It was a hard life. And he says, I, that's not how Paul saw his life. And then he paraphrased sev- several spots of, of uh, the scriptures, I think primarily in, in Ephesians and I think once in Colossians 2, maybe, or Galatians, I can't remember. Um, but he, he, he paraphrases it to counter it and says, "This is this is really the emphasis that Paul is placing on his own life. And he starts saying, yeah, I'm enduring suffering, but the Holy Spirit is moving and, and people are turning to Christ. Churches are being planted. Uh, you know, I'm going to prison and the, the whole Roman army is, 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 uh, is, is hearing the gospel because of this God is doing amazing things to this. And he says like, you know, I'm bursting with joy. And it's like, well, actually, I mean, if you read through the scriptures, that, that is really how Paul describes his, if you can, if he would really even say it, quote unquote, suffering he says, this is, this is amazing what God's doing through it. And he's got that, that mindset of like, "Yeah, I'm at the bottom of the J curve, but like, do you see what God's doing up there where he's leading me toward? Um, and, and really then that also really paints a lot of the picture and, and shapes how Paul even talks about prayer. I mean, if you look in Ephesians uh, four, four through 17, uh, a common passage, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Always again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in prayer, uh, but in everything by prayer and supplication with what? Thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Saying when you're weighed down with anxiety, Pray with thanksgiving. Why? Because, yeah, you're in the slumps right now, but where are you headed? You're headed out of it. Christ is raising us up. Colossians 4.2, you know, this is one that he, he mentions in the passage. Uh, I'm sorry, in the, uh, in the chapter. Um, he says, continue steadfast in prayer, always being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. There's a hope in our prayer. We we he says in uh in, in first Thessalonians uh four thirteen through eighteen, and, and this passage is not about um about prayer, but it's about the problems we pray about in prayer. First Thessalonians uh four, he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. He's talking about brothers and sisters who have died, who have passed on said, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And and he goes on to just describe the glorious hope we have of Christ's return. That is shaping Paul's understanding of prayer. He's He's shaping that when we pray about real things in our lives... We pray about the slumps, the hardship, the suffering. We can pray with hope. We can pray with thanksgiving because our our future is fixed. Um, you know, we li- we need to live and pray with two things at the forefronts of our mind. One, the reality of our current circumstances, and he talks about that. You know, and we need to to see the hardship for hardship. We can't just avoid it. And I think COVID really kind of started point some of that out to us. Like you kind of got to face reality. But then two, the certain hope of our fixed reality. We need to pray in the tension of these two things. And the beauty of that is it gives you a path of prayer every single time. When When you're at your mountain high, you know more is to come. And when you're at the lowest point in grief and sorrow, you can pray, knowing there's going to be a day when all grief, all sorrow, all tear will be all tears will be wiped away. We pray with hope in all circumstances. Um, let's see how we're doing here. All right, we got to wrap up. All right, last chapter, really quick. Uh, chapter twenty-two. He talks about the prayer menu, um, and he addresses how prayer can um kind of feel dehumanized or unnatural or stiff. Uh, in the uh, opening chapter, or in the opening paragraph, he says, uh, see, chapter 22, yeah, he says, um, conversation with good friends runs the gamut of human experience. You laugh, you cry, you listen, you lament, you, you enjoy, It's one of life's greatest delights. Remarkably, you can have the same level of conversation with a two-year-old and an 82-year-old. And yet, when God joins the conversation, prayer, everything stiffens up. It's like your mom just walked in on a sleepover. The giggles stop and everyone gets quiet. Why do we shut down our hearts when we begin to pray together? Can you relate to that at all? Why do we shut down our hearts when we begin to pray together. Does anybody have any ideas? Any thoughts to add to that? Of just a conversation? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing t- to that too is like, what are we told? What kind of faith are we told to have? Faith of a child, right? Right a child will run up to you and just blurt out the most, like, <laughs> absurd stuff, you know? Uh, it just, that just sounds like if you knew what you were saying right now, you would be so embarrassed, you know? But, like, that's the kind of faith. Like, I'm not concerned about how other people see us. Like, people who don't, don't care the most about themselves are children. That's beautiful, to some degree. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how much of it is, uh... um the The chapter here is is primarily really just a, a whole a whole as a as a kind of a practical resource um, he puts together what he calls the prayer menu um which is basically um it reviews patterns in jesus' life and then views different just, uh per uh perspectives or uh directions we can take in prayer um the those patterns he says like um the patterns of Jesus is, uh, compassion, which is care for people, honesty, care for truth, uh, dependence, care for God's will, um, and then those directions when we, when we view through each of those patterns. He says, you know, viewing our own heart, viewing the world. So in, out, and then looking towards God as well. That perspective, looking up. Um, and he's got a whole grid work here of, you know, like... Um, praying about how we feel, praying about, com, uh, with compassion, praying, um, with the mindset of enjo- of enjoyment, praying with a, a mindset of, uh, repentance of, of honesty, of lament, desire, need, uh, and watching and waiting. Um, one thing I thought that was really cool about this when I was just thinking through of like, you know, why does he choose the patterns of Jesus? Um, I think it's really easy to say, well, cause he's God you know, because he's Jesus. Well, yes, but there's something to be said here. He's he's talking about how do we rehumanize prayer? How do we rehumanize our conversation with God? He models this, Jesus models this perfectly, not just because he's God, but because he's the God man. He's the incarnate God who became man, in his incarnation, he, he shows us what it means to be human by God's design in a relationship with God. If someone is going to teach us how to humanize the relationship between God and man in our prayer, it is going to be the incarnate son of God who is both fully God and fully man. And I think that then also like that's not just something to be treated as like a, oh, a theological point. Like, which, yes, that's, that's great and all. um, But even just as we saw this past Sunday, there's a nearness in that, right? Like he's the high priest who can sympathize with us. He's pleading on our behalf. He's praying to God, the father on our behalf as the God man. And so when we're praying, modeling after Jesus prayers, we're recognizing that we're not just praying the way Jesus did. We're praying alongside Jesus. He's praying with us. So, anyways, that is, so that's, that's chapter 22. Um, that's everything I, I have for us this evening. And it is 7.35. Five minutes over. Not bad. Um, let's go ahead and pray. And um, we can go ahead and, uh, for those of us who have kids over there, pick them up. I know I've got one. So, Lord, Heavenly Father, we we thank you that uh, even just as this past Sunday, we got to celebrate. We have Christ at your right hand who is interceding for us. And it is through Christ that right now, even as we close this study, we are praying. We are talking to you. We are approaching you in prayer, Lord, in open, free communication to you, Lord. God, we thank you for the gift we have in prayer, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that uh, not only can we lift our voices to you, Lord, but that you hear them, Lord, and that they penetrate your heart, that you are the loving God and Lord of creation who hears the prayers of his people, is moved by them, and answers. Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow in the faithfulness and consistency and steadfastness of prayer, Lord, that we too with with Anna would devote our lives to the power of prayer, to the power of your spirit through prayer, Lord. We pray that you would continue to shape our church in that mindset, Lord, and in that obedience, Lord, and in that desire, Lord, to see you work through a praying church through our praying church. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.